Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we praise you. We thank you that you are such an awesome God, that you are so faithful. And Lord, I just pray as we go to your word this morning that we truly understand what it means to follow you. And as we look at the Beatitudes, Father God, that we would understand where true joy and righteousness comes from. So contrary to what the world says, but so clear from your word. And Lord, we just ask that, Father, it would be a time of us being encouraged, exhorted, and equipped in your word. May man decrease, that your spirit would increase. May you be our teacher this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. We're going to be picking up at verse 12 this morning. And just real quickly, last week we saw God's calling upon the lives of men to follow Him. We'll look a little more in depth at that this morning. We saw our position in Christ, that we are His patients. He's the physician. We see that we are His bride, that we are new creations in Him. And then lastly, we saw that Christianity, having a relationship with God, is entering into a place of rest, not bondage. You know, so much of what religion is today is, is a bondage. And we saw last week as the Lord talked about the Sabbath, it was a place of peace. And the Sabbath is not one day a week, but we enter into a God of the Sabbath. Amen? And we have rest in Him 24-7. We can have rest in Him in the eye of a storm because we walk with the Creator of the universe. Now this week we're going to look at the calling of the twelve apostles. We'll look at what kind of men were these guys. These twelve guys that God called. The apostles, right? The, the, the guys that were sent out and used by God. The men who would be reaching out and touching the known world when Jesus left. And who were these men and what kind of men were they? We'll take a look at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Look at the Beatitudes, again, the source of righteousness from the eyes of God. And then we'll also look at, at woes in the, in the text in the Sermon on the Mount, warnings of consequences of a life that's, that seeks to be satisfied in the flesh. So let's begin in verse 12 of chapter 6, and we're going to look at the calling of the twelve, the apostles, this new nation. Now when we come to this point, just to catch us up, our Lord had reached basis, basically a, a turning point in the ministry. Great crowds were following him, but their interest was not in spiritual things. Their interest was in healing, and you know they wanted to see a sign. They wanted to see something supernatural. We also know that the religious leaders wanted him dead already. We saw at the end of the last chapter when Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath. What did they say? Oh man, we got to figure out a way to kill him. He's healing. He's doing good on the Sabbath. We can't have that. We got to put that, we got to put that to death right now, right? He's coming in, and people are following him instead of following us. So we also know that Herod's friends, the Herodians, were seeking to kill him as well. So here's Jesus in this time of, of, of crisis in the ministry. People are following after him. People want him dead. And we see the, what he does beginning in verse 12. Look what, what the Lord does at the midst of this time. So now it came to pass in those days that he went out to a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Now it's interesting that the Lord is in a difficulty. Now, He's God, and He's in control, and He knows what's next. But at the same time, people are seeking to kill Him, and His desire is to, to be an example to us in doing the will of the Father. And during this time, as He's about to appoint His twelve apostles, He goes and He spends time with the Father. You know, I believe that the number one, one of the main problems in the Christian walk with most people today, myself included, is that we don't spend enough time in the presence of the Lord. You know, we, we want direction from God, but we don't listen to God. We want the Lord to... to to fill us to overflowing with the Spirit. We want the Lord to help us to overcome difficulties or sin that we're struggling with, but yet we don't spend enough time in His presence. And here, Jesus Christ, who is God, who is sinless, who is perfect, He's the Creator of the universe, and yet, at this difficult time, what does He do? He spends an entire night in the presence of the Father in prayer. Now remember that though Jesus is 100% God, He is still 100% man, and Jesus got tired just like we do. Amen? He got tired. 
His physically got tired, but yet he stayed up all night praying and seeking after the Father. And what an example for us. It's also the point, too, that he was getting ready to go and appoint the apostles, to choose these 12 men who he would basically disciple, train, and give over the ministry to when he would leave. And before he makes this awesome choice of these men, again, he's 100% God, he still sought the Father's will. He still spent time in prayer. You know, often what we'll do, we have a major decision to make in life, whether it be in ministry or, or job situation, and we go and we, you know, we do the Ben Franklin clothes, right? You take a piece of paper out, oh, these are all the positives, and these are all the negatives. Oh, well, I'll go for it. There's ten more positives and negatives, oh, then that's what I'll do. And I remember, I'll never forget the story of Pastor Don McClure, who, who was pastoring a church in Southern California. The church was thriving. I mean, it was absolutely thriving. The church had grown to thousands. And they had a high school and a Bible college and anything you could possibly want in a church. It was doing wonderful. But God was stirring him that there was something else he was supposed to do. And he went and he saw Chuck Smith and the building in San Jose where they are now had just gone bankrupt and had been given, sold, given to Calvary Chapel. And, and Pastor Chuck was thinking about you know, who can go up and take that church? And Pastor Don comes in and he sits down with Pastor Chuck and says, I know that God's got something else. My wife thinks I'm crazy. The ministry's thriving. Everything is wonderful. People are getting saved. It's just, it's going incredible. But I just feel like God's got something else. And Chuck and Pastor Don begin to pray. And Pastor Chuck said to him, they were praying for a while and they looked up and said, I know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to go to San Jose. Pastor Don said, oh, no, I'm not supposed to go to San Jose. What are you talking about? Oh yeah, there's a building with $11 million worth of debt that you'll inherit, and there's basically no people, but you know, it's a big building, and you, yeah, that's what you need to do. Leave the ministry that's thriving and growing, and God's doing wonderful things, and go up there to, you know, the place where the glory hath departed, San Jose, California, and I want you to go there, and I want you to take this big, huge debt in this building, and there are a few people left there, but they're swinging from the chandeliers and pounding on pianos and stuff, but you know, you, go minister to them. Oh, I'm not supposed to do that. So he's driving home, and as he's driving home, he's doing the Ben Franklin clothes in his mind. Oh, but we got a school here. My kids love it here. My children are plugged in here. They're in high school. My wife loves it. Man, every, God, Bible college, God's doing all this stuff. It's so wonderful. It's so perfect. And he's, oh man, there's 9,000 things on this side, and there was only one thing on the other side. And the one thing was, but God said. And guess what? That cancels out all the other stuff. But God said. And you know what? You, that, you know when you get to that place of not doing Ben Franklin closes anymore is when you spend time in the presence of the Father. And Jesus did that. And now He's going to go call His twelve apostles. And as He calls them, He has heard from the Father. He is 100% God. But again, He became 100% man as well. And in His humanity, He goes out and chooses His apostles. Now, who are these men that He chose? It's interesting to learn and look at these guys, these twelve apostles. These men who are going to be used mightily for ministry. Verse 13. And when it was day, he called his twelve he called his disciples, and that's more than twelve, to himself. And from them he chose twelve who he named apostles. Now, the Greek word called stresses that Jesus is the one who initiated the calling. And the same is true today. Men do not call men, God calls men. Amen? And women. And children. Whoever God is calling into a place of ministry, it's God who calls them. The problem we have again today, we do things by popular vote. Well, let's vote on it. Well, I think. Well, men think. Well, I think. This is what we ought to do. But you know what? If men call men, it's going to come to nothing. 
But if God calls men, He will sustain the ministry and He will do awesome and wonderful things. And so God is the one, Jesus is the one who initiates it as he's call, He calls His twelve to, the, to Himself. John fifteen sixteen says, You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear much fruit. The word disciple means a learner, an apprentice, someone who is growing in their faith. Apostle is a chosen messenger sent out by God. So He had many apostles, but only or, or disciples, but only tw- twelve that he hand-chose to be apostles. And just as he calls them, God has a calling on every life in, in this room this morning. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, God has called you to do something. He hasn't just called you to be a pew potato. Amen? He hasn't just called us to come in and get fed and get fed and get fat and get fed and get fatter and fed and fat and fed. He, there's the, you know, the Dead Sea is dead because that has an inlet and no outlet. And as Christians, God has called us. And what is He calling you to do? And when people ask me, well, I don't know what I'm called to do, I tell them, get on your face before God and let Him speak to you. But remember too, I believe that a burden is a spawning ground of a calling. And whatever God calls you to do, He will equip you to do. And so what do, you, do you have a burden for it? If you have a burden for it, that is a sign that God has called you. Move on. It says 12. Now, it's interesting to note that He called 12 apostles. But remember that there were 12 tribes of Israel. And back in Genesis, our Genesis study on Wednesday nights, he called 12 and used those 12 tribes to reach the known world. He built them into a mighty nation in the book of Exodus, which we are starting this Wednesday night. And they were chosen to bring the Messiah and the message of the Messiah. But now that nation was now in decay. They had rejected their own Messiah. And so in the midst of that, he was going to raise up these 12 men to begin a holy nation. The beginning of Christianity will begin with these 12 men. It says in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Now, after praying all night and then choosing the 12 apostles, what kind of men did Jesus choose? Did He pick kings? Did He choose priests, you know, the most holy guys of the day? Did he, go, did he go down to the synagogue and go, oh, who are the most highly elevated of all the Pharisees? I'll pick you 12 guys. Oh, who's got the longest hymn on your robe? Who's the most holy and righteous? I'll pick you 12. No, he didn't do that. Did he pick the scholars or the ones that are most intellectual? Who had the 12 highest SAT scores? Are you going to be the apostles? Everybody's going to come in next Sunday. We're going to have a test. Whoever gets the 12 highest scores, since you're the most intelligent, we're going to call you guys to be the leader of the church. That's not what he did. Did he go down and he found the generals and the military leaders and say, well, you know, let's get these guys. Have you guys come in. Tell me your strategies for battle and war. You know, tell me about some of the battles you've been in. What kind of scar? How brave of a man are you? And they picked the bravest men. No, he didn't pick those people either. Did he pick those who were of great wealth? Everybody come in and whoever can write the biggest check. These 12 positions are up for sale. Whoever writes the biggest check, you guys are going to be the apostles. Didn't do any of that. You know, the reality is that that's how I think a lot of pulpit committees pick their pastors today. Well, how much intellect do you have? What, 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 where did you finish in your class at seminary? What number were you in the class? How, how, how much money do you... What kind of background do you have? How battle-tested how battle are you? What kind of things have you done? And they look at things from a worldly standard. Then they bring them in and everybody votes. Oh, it's all vote. You know, we can vote all day long, but it's the calling of God that matters. Amen? It's not the voting of men. It's the calling of God. And the Lord is going to call these 12 men, and it's interesting what kind of men He chooses. He doesn't choose men of renown. He chooses average men. And I love that because that means if God can use men like them, He can use men and women like us. Amen? You might say, well, I'm not educated. No, you don't have to be. I'm not... El-. It doesn't matter. 
If God calls you, He'll equip you, and He will use you in a mighty and a powerful way. Let's take a look at who these men were. Simon, who is also named Peter, Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew. Peter, James, John and Andrew, those closest to the Lord, were all fishermen. Now this was a necessary profession, but it was lowly esteemed. It was not a profession that people esteemed to. It was a job that you inherited from your dad most of the time. Peter's name was changed, we know, from Simon, and his name means rock. You know, the Lord is, is the Petra, the great rock, and he, he's the small rock, chip off the old block. I also think it's funny that Peter the fisherman, I'm sure he did catch some fish, he wouldn't have been a fisherman, but you never see him catching any fish in the Bible unless the Lord helped him. Never. So not only was he a fisherman, but I don't think he was a very successful one. But yet God chose him, and I love that, that God chooses mere men and uses them mightily, for his glory. James and John were called the sons of thunder because these guys were impulsive and impetuous guys. Their mother came and said, we want our sons to be seated at the right. And I want, can I, my boys sit on your right and left hand side when you enter into the kingdom? So he had a mom who was prideful and selfish. Andrew and Philip were seen often bringing people to Jesus. These guys, again, I love these guys because you don't see them necessarily preaching a lot of sermons, though no doubt they did. These were men who were always going and bringing people to Jesus. We had a thing in our youth group, we used to call it Operation Andrew. And I used to have this thing where I'd hand out these flyers to kids whenever we had a major event coming up, and I'd have them write the name of people in there that they wanted to invite, and then we would pray for them every single day. That those kids would be willing to, to come to a, an outreach event, and we'd fill that church up with thousands of kids. Because people would be praying and seeking God, and praying that kids' hearts would be open, and we called it Operation Andrew, because that's what Andrew did. Andrew went out and said, you know, you need, you need to come see Jesus. I'm telling you, you've got to come see this guy. This is who I used to be. Here's who I am today. And this is what happened to me. And you've got to come meet him. And you know what? That's how churches grow. Healthy sheep beget healthy sheep. Amen? It's not programs. And if, and if they grow through programs, it's unhealthy growth. But if they grow through people being on fire for Jesus Christ and being contagious, look out. God will do an awesome thing. Verse 15. Matthew. We know that he's, his name originally was Levi. We know he was a tax collector. We know that those are the kinds of men that were, that were looked down upon by the Jews. They were basically hated by the Jews because they were looked at as traitors. These were the men who had gone out and walked away from their brethren and started working for the Romans and would come and say, come at your house and have guards with them. Clank, clank, clank. You, Doug, you owe $50,000. Write me a check right now. Wait a minute. I didn't, I, write the check. And then you go by his house and he's got this big huge mansion on a hill and you're living in a shack because he took all your money for taxes. How do you think people are looking at Matthew right about now? They're not liking this guy. You're a traitor. You're a dog. You turned over to the Romans. But we know Jesus came and said, Matthew, come and follow me. Levi, come follow me. And his name became Matthew, which means the gift of God. Thomas, what do we know about him? We know that Thomas is a doubter. Where do you think that word, the doubting Thomas, comes from? It's this guy. Right? Remember when Jesus had risen from the dead? Who's the one that said, oh, I doubt it. Until I see it, I don't believe it. I doubt it. Je this is one of the guys Jesus called. Don't you love it, though? Again, these guys are mere men, but used mightily by God. It says here, Simon, called the Zealot. Now, the Zealots were a group of Jewish extremists who organized to overthrow Rome. They were a group that would stop at nothing to advance their cause. Now, this is interesting to me because Simon is a, a, a zealot for overthrowing Rome... And Matthew is a tax collector working for the Roman government. And there's only 12 apostles. This is not a big group. And God takes the two of these guys that should be dire enemies, probably hating each other's guts, and puts them together. And what do they do? Mighty things for the kingdom of God. 
You know what that does? That glorifies and honors the Lord. Amen? And you know what? When we got Jesus in common, we got everything in common. Right? You know, I, I'd, rather sit, I'd rather sit and talk to somebody who loves the Lord, who speaks a different language than I do for the most part, who lives in a different land, who has different loves and different hobbies and different priorities than somebody who doesn't know God, who's got everything in common with me from a worldly perspective. Because when you've got Jesus in common, you've got everything in common. And God takes these 12 men, and only God could do that. You know, it's been said that blood is thicker than water. Well, the Holy Spirit is thicker than blood. Amen? Blood may be thicker than water, but the Holy Spirit's thicker than blood. I definitely have people who, I, who I've known very short amounts of time who love the Lord like I do. And you know what? I'm closer to them than I am people I'm related to who don't walk with God because we've got Jesus in common. It says here, Judas the son of James and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Wait a minute. Jesus chose Judas. The answer is yes. He did. He chose him. Did Jesus know that Judas was going to betray him? The answer is yes. But what's interesting to me is that Judas heard Jesus teach. He saw him perform miracles, give sight to the blind, cleanse the leper, turn water into wine, feed the 5,000, preach with authority in the synagogue, walk a sinless, perfected life, and yet he still betrayed him. This shows that God has given every man free will. Every man has an opportunity to accept or reject Jesus Christ. And you know what? Judas was exposed in an incredible way to the truth, and yet he still walked away from the Lord. The word Iscariot has a couple different possible meanings. One means man of, of Kerioth, it's a city. But some connect the word to an Aramaic word which means falsehood, which may, would mean his name is Judas the False One, Judas Iscariot. So what an interesting group of men these guys are. Seven fishermen, a tax collector, a religious zealot, three of anonymous vocations, one of which was a betrayer. But this is a clear illustration of 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 to 29. It says this, For see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base things of the world. And the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring nothing to things that are that no flesh should glory in His presence. Why does God use mere men and women like us? Why did He choose the average? You know why? He chose them because then He alone would be glorified. You know, if somebody's a, a great and eloquent speaker, I mean, you know, man, that guy's so gifted and he, he's, you know, he's so entertaining and he's so... That, then what happens is the crowd is gathered unto the pastor. A lot of churches like that. Real big churches. And people go because the guy's entertaining. Every time I go, it's so funny or, you know, whatever. And, and they go, but they're following a man. If you're following God, it's not going to be the charisma of the speaker. It's going to be the truth of the message. Amen? If you're following the messenger, you've got a problem. It's the message that we should seek. And, you know, I've had people get up and real quiet and calm individuals open up the Bible and just teach, and it's so powerful. You know, I love Chuck Smith, and God has used him mightily in my life. But Chuck Smith though used mildly by God, certainly would not be defined as charismatic. He's not, you know, he's not, what's that guy, Hopkins or whatever that guy's name is? He's not, he's, he's not one of these, you know, he's not running out on stage and jumping up and down, you know, he doesn't have PowerPoint flying. He gets up there, he opens up the Bible, and he teaches it with authority. That's what God's looking for, is people who are called by Him, who will deny themselves, who don't have their own agenda, who are not trying to seek the praise of men, and that's what God would make these apostles into. They were ordinary men of differing personalities and backgrounds, average men, not men of renown, yet God chose them, and He used them mightily. And again, it should be an encouragement to us. You know why? He's not looking for ability, but availability. You know what these 12 men did do? When Jesus said, come and follow me, 
That's exactly what they did. They followed Jesus with reckless abandon. They said, Matthew, Levi, I want you to come follow me. He walked away from his job making all the money. He walked away from being a tax collector. He turned his back on the Roman government. He knew it would cost him everything to follow Jesus. So many people today want to follow Jesus, but just a little bit. You know, I want the get out of hell free card. You know, I don't want to go to hell. I want to get, can I put that in my wallet? I want to pray the prayer. I want to give you an hour a week, Lord, but you know, don't infringe on the rest of my day. You know, i got other stuff going on in life. Just leave me alone. Just you know, give me the get-out-of-hell-free thing. I'll sit on a hard chair for an hour a week if you want me to. You know, But don't ask for any more than that. And you know what? The apostles didn't do that. The apostles, when they were called by God, said, I'm leaving. I'll leave my job. I'll leave everything. Now, God may not call you to leave your job, but we should be willing to. Amen? We should be willing to walk away from everything if that's what He chooses to do. And if God keeps you at your job, He's got you there to be salt and light of that place. Amen? We should be halogen lights wherever God puts us. And that's what the apostles were. Here I am, Lord, send me. I love that song. Here I am, Lord, use me as you will. And that's what the Lord's looking for. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro, looking for those He can use. Now look at verse 17. And I think it's significant. He calls the apostles. He calls them unto Himself. And the first thing they do is they go down from the mountain. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of the, of the disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear Him and to be healed of their diseases. It's significant that after Jesus calls these guys and before He pe- preaches His great sermon we're going to look at next, He took time to heal many needy people. You know what? The Lord, I believe, is healing and touching the people, but He's also giving an example to the apostles. You want to come and follow me? You know what my followers do? They touch the lives of other people. He demonstrated His power and He demonstrated His compassion. All right, you're going to be my guys. I'm going to pour my life into you. I'm going to use you mightily to touch this world that's hurting so desperately. Let me show you how that's done. And they follow Jesus and He goes down and He starts to touch the lives of people. And it says every single person that came to Him was healed. Everyone. And He shows compassion. You know, one of my favorite statements, people used to ask me, Pastor Dave, define your, your philosophy of ministry. It's six words. Preach the Word, love the people. Do those two things. And you know where I got that example? From Jesus Christ. He taught the Word without compromise. He did not fear the the retribution of men. He taught the Word, taught the Word anywhere, anytime He could. And He's God. Amen? But you know what He also did? Is He loved the people. And so to me, that's that's what my heart is for Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz. That we would preach the Word and love the people. That every person that comes in the door would hear the Word of God every single time they come. And the Word would be taught without compromise, whether I'm teaching it or somebody else in this room. And that every single person would feel the love of God. They would feel welcomed, they would feel cared for, and they would see God's compassion in each one of us. Amen? And that was, that's what I learned. That's the picture of what Jesus Christ did. And He takes the apostles with Him and He goes down that hill and He preaches the Word. He teaches to them as He's about to do in the Sermon on the Mount. But before He does that, He shows us compassion as He heals and He touches them. It's our job to do the same today. Preach the Word, love the people. Note also the diversity of people. People came from Jerusalem and Judea. Even though in Jerusalem they had many famous rabbis. Isn't that interesting? All these famous rabbis dwelt in Jerusalem. They had tons of synagogues. They had people with the long hymns and the robes, but yet they left all that to come out and hear Jesus teach. And you know what? I see more and more of that happening today. People leaving dead religion to find the true Savior. Amen? 
I just did a pastor's meeting on, on Friday over at Calvary San Jose, and it's interesting to me that there's calls from all over the world. This is totally God. To Him alone be all the glory. But there's calls from all over the world to have Calvary Chapel pastors come and teach in Bible colleges all over the world. They're saying, you, get, you guys want to go to Budapest? They need people there. They're looking for people to come to, to uh, China. They're looking for people to come to the Philippines. They're looking for people to come to India. And I praise the Lord that by His grace alone, the Calvary Chapels are known for places the Word of God is taught. And people are fleeing from just the, the titles and the dead religions. And we want someone to teach us the Bible. We open the Bible and just teach it to us. That's what we're so hungry for. Praise the Lord for that. And these people left out of Jerusalem and they came out to hear the Word of God. They came from Tyre and Sidon. These were generally successful men of business who boarded on Canaan, uh, a land that had been overrun by idol worship. But they did not have the Word of God and they traveled a great distance. Even though they had all the riches, they still wanted something more. I've, tr- I've had the money. I've had the business success. It's not enough. I need something more. Something's missing. And they sought to find it in Jesus. Verse 18. As well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch Him for the power went out from Him and healed them all. The whole multitude sought to touch Him. So even those who were well, even the wealthy businessmen, even those who were thriving in, in, in life from the world's perspective were seeking to touch Jesus. And then there were those who were demonized, whose lives were a total mess, and they were seeking to touch Jesus. And the reality is that no matter who you are in life, no matter if you're the wealthiest man in the world, or you're, you're, you're sick and you're hurting and you can't work and you're homeless, God is the same God and you need to touch Him. Amen? No matter which spectrum you're on in that, you need Jesus Christ. And you're not going to find peace anywhere else but from Him. And they all came. And I love what it says there. And the power went out from Him and He healed them. What's that word there? All. He didn't heal some. He healed them all. Nobody will ever be touched by Jesus and not have their life transformed. The problem is that people don't want to be touched by Him. All sought His touch. All were healed. And most important healing is not the physical healing, but the spiritual one. You know what? Being made a new creation in Christ. Having been born again. A couple, couple of people have told me that, you know, Pastor Dave, you're always so happy. And oh, you always say, whenever they ask me, how are you doing? You know, I say, I'm going to heaven. And you know what? That's the reality. That's where our joy comes from. Amen? You're going to heaven. It doesn't get any better than that. You're a new creation in Christ. You've been adopted into the kingdom of God. My best friend created the universe. Amen? And you know what? They take all that I have, I'll still have all that I need. And when we have a spiritual focus and spiritual perspective, the things of the world will not bring us down. Because we're walking and we know the creator of the universe. Now he moves on from, from calling the twelve and then taking them out and exemplifying for them compassion and, and, and the love of God. And now he's going to teach a message that is called the Sermon on the Mount. Many of you I know have heard of it. And the better, uh, the longer, more comprehensive versions in Matthew, and we're actually going to turn there in a minute. I don't like to do that typically, but I'm going to do that on the Beatitudes just because there's, there, it's a more comprehensive look at it. Um, the comparative scripture in Matthew. But he's going to get up and he's going to give the Sermon on the Mount. And let me just read to you the Beatitudes. The Beatitude means, oh, how happy. And you know, the religious leaders had an artificial understanding of what happiness was about. Happiness came from the external. And you know what? Doesn't that sound like the world today? You know, I've heard, even Christians, I've said it myself. Somebody's got a big house and you say, oh man, that person is so blessed. And we look at blessing from a physical point of view rather than a spiritual one. I think these guys who are living in the mission field, you know, living in a hut, eating a handful of rice, but leading thousands to Christ, those are the ones who are blessed. Amen? 
I mean, that's blessing, is being used mildly by God. And so he's going to give them perspective. And he starts off, and I'm just going to read verse 20 through 23. It says, Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are your poor, are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast you out, cast out your name as evil, for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Now, in almost two years of this church existing, I've never done this, but I'm going to have you turn away from the text for a minute here, and turn to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to look at the same message, but Matthew just gives a more comprehensive um, look at the text. And I'm going to go through this with you rather quickly. Let's begin in verse 3. And these are the same word, this is the same message, and Jesus is speaking. And I want, to, I want you to see in this where true joy comes from. Where does true righteousness come from? And let's begin in verse 3. It says, Blessed are you, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, blessed means, oh, how happy. So, oh, how happy are the poor in spirit. Wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. Well, what he's talking about here is our attitude about ourselves. The fundamental and foremost truth that brings happiness in a man is we must first realize that we are spiritually bankrupt in desperate need of a Savior. Now, the world tells you, esteem self. Lift yourself up. You're so wonderful. Right? A lot of churches do that too. You're so wonderful. You guys are so great. You're such beautiful people. Oh, it's so what? You know, you know what? The reality is we're a bunch of stinking sinners. Amen? We're spiritually bankrupt, separated from God. Because of our sin and our wickedness, we've separated ourselves from the, from the Father. It goes back to the Garden of Eden when they chose to sin and be separated from the Lord. And the, oh, how happy are those who realize that they are spiritually bankrupt. When they realize that without the Lord, they can do nothing. That they're in desperate need for God. Another word for that would be broken. Oh, how happy is the man who is broken. I've said this before. A man or a woman is the only thing that becomes more valuable when broken. You know, everything else that breaks, you take to the swap meet and you sell it for a quarter. You know? But you know what? A man or a woman when broken becomes more valuable. You know, when the woman came with an alabaster flask and she poured out that precious oil on our Savior. What did she have to do to the vessel before that sweet incense could pour out? She had to break it. And before the sweet incense of the Holy Spirit can pour out of us, we must be broken of our flesh. We must be broken of our desires. We must be broken of our will. And we must be conformed to His image. The world says the first step to happiness is to be self-assertive, be confident, to esteem yourself, to feel good about who you are. You need to feel good about who you are. Poor in spirit is the opposite of what the world says. It's humbly coming to God, relying on grace and knowing that our hope is in Him alone, being desperate for Him, being a place of constant desperation for God and for His touch. And it says, for those who are poor in spirit, what does it say? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those whose hope is in God's grace and not in themselves have the promise of heaven to come. If you're trusting in yourself, you don't have the promise of heaven. If you're trusting in your own righteousness, you don't have the promise of heaven. If you're trusting in your own ability to somehow be pleasing before God, you do not have the promise of heaven. But if you've come to the end of yourself, you've realized that you're desperate and you're broken and you're poor in spirit, in need of a Savior, yours is the kingdom of heaven. 
Once we're poor in spirit, what happens next? Look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. So once you realize you're spiritually bankrupt and you've been broken because of your sin, the next thing that happens is you begin to weep because of your sin. You mourn over the sin that is in your life. Oh, how happy are those who mourn? That doesn't make sense from a physical perspective. But it does from a spiritual one. Oh, how happy are those who mourn over their sin. Without conviction, there can be no conversion. Amen? Until I see that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, I'll never see a need for one. I'll never cry out for God. But when I mourn over my sin, when my heart is broken, you know what? I've, I've had a chance, I, most of you know, I have a real burden for evangelism. I've had a chance to go to Russia six or seven times and other places around the world. I had a chance to speak to large groups of kids and see lots of people get saved. But I'll be honest with you, when people come forward leaping and dancing, I'm concerned as to whether or not they truly understand what is happening. You know when I see true conversion? is when someone comes forward broken and weeping over their sin. They're broken and weeping and saying, Man, you know what? I need Jesus. I'm desperate. I, I, man, I, I'm not worthy. I'm humbled. And those are the ones. That's conversion. Oh, how happy are those who mourn over their sin. And look what it says. For they shall be comforted. Who's the comforter in the Bible? Holy Spirit. So what happens when you're broken and you're poor in spirit and you realize you begin to mourn over your sin and you cry out to God, what happens? He gives you the Holy Spirit. Amen? This is where you're born again. When, you're, when you mourn over your sin, you're broken and you cry out to God, He pours out His Holy Spirit upon you, a down payment of your eternal inheritance who comes to live inside of you and you're born again, a new creation in Christ. And He'll never leave you nor forsake you, the Bible says. Amen. So would you say that that person's oh how happy? The answer is absolutely. Why? Because they've been touched by God. Love that. Oh how happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We are comforted with God's mercy, His forgiveness, His grace, and His touch. Now look at the, the, now, now once you're poor in spirit and you're broken, and then you mourn over sin and you're comforted, what happens next in that walk? It says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now meek does not mean weak. When you think of meek, you think of a little mouse or something. You know, right? A little meek, little, oh, he's meek. You know, you know weighs 83 pounds, so oh, he's meek, right? That's not meek. The word meek means strength under control. I, I've heard that my favorite analogy is those big Clydesdale horses, right? Those horses are huge, right? Walking over my head. Those things are huge, but they're meek because they're under control of their master. And what happens to us when we realize we become poor in spirit, we're broken because of that, we begin to mourn over our sin, and then the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, we become meek. We become strength under control of the master. Amen? Once we've been broken and we've mourned over sin, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, and now He guides and He leads and He directs, and we become meek, strength under His control. And it says, you shall, they shall inherit the earth. We will be rulers on earth for a thousand years with Jesus Christ when He returns. How many of you knew that? Amen? Millennial kingdom. When he come, after the rapture, we're going to be in heaven for seven years, and after that we're going to come back, and he's going to wipe out his enemies, and then we're going to get a thousand years on earth to see what the world would be like had Jesus Christ been in charge. It's going to be awesome. Now there's going to be some other things. We'll get to that when we get to Revelation. Now it says here in verse 6, What happens then? You're poor in spirit. You mourn over your sin. You're filled with the Spirit. You become strength under control of your Master. How do we know? What's the evidence of that? Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know what? One, the thing that blesses me most as a pastor is to see people 
who can't get enough of the Bible. They can't get enough of God's Word. They can't get enough. I love people come and say, man, you know, I wish we had church every night. I'd be here every night. I said, well, you can't have church every night. Just crack open the Bible at home. Amen? You know, we need to open it up at home. We need more than twice a week. And I think it is important that you get involved in, you know, closer, smaller group studies because that's a chance for you to really use your gifts. But it says, oh, how happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Realizing you're spiritually bankrupt, mourning over your sin, now filled with the Spirit and directed by God. And the absolute opposite is true of the Pharisees attempting to establish righteousness on their own instead of hungering and thirsting for the righteousness that comes from God. Now, it's important to note that without brokenness and without repentance before God, there can be no righteousness. And it says, when you seek after God, it says, they shall be what? The word is filled. There's the only hunger that man can ever have that will be filled by God. The flesh, self-righteousness, will never, ever, ever be filled by God. Now, once all this happens, you know what starts to happen? As we fall in love with the Lord, as we mourn over our sin, as we've been comforted by God, as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, the way we treat other people changes. Look at the next verse. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. What happens when you know that God has touched your life? How do you look at other people? You begin to have mercy. You begin to see other people and say, you know what God has done for me, God can do for them too. You know, it's amazing that the closer you get to God, the more you have a broken heart and a love for others. And that's exactly what's taught here, what Jesus is teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount. To give us true peace within, and once He does that, we pour out on those around us. The Bible says to forgive others as Christ forgave us. Verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Not only does our attitude toward men change, but our attitude toward God changes. Our attitude toward sin changes. You know, the closer you get to the Lord, the more you hate sin. You hate it. I'll be honest with you. I hate sin in my life. And I hate the fact that it's still there, but it is. And every time I sin, I'm grieved. And you know what? It breaks my heart when I sin. It breaks my heart that I choose to sin. Sin doesn't happen on accident. Amen? Oh, I accidentally... No, you didn't accidentally sin. You chose to sin. And you know what I'm talking about? And God, doesn't God put up a bunch of stop signs in front of you right before you sin? Do you know what I'm talking about? You get ready to say something, you know you're not supposed to say it, and Holy going, don't say it. No, you shouldn't say that. That's not right. Don't say it. Don't say it. It'll be funny, though. Don't say it. Right? <laughs> and then you say it, and everybody laughs, and the Holy Spirit goes, told you not to say that. Right? But we choose to sin. And it grieves us. And the closer we get to God, the more sin grieves us, because it's separation from Him. And that's the way that it should be. As our walk, as we continue to go with Him, our attitude toward men changes and our attitude toward God. Further in the attitude toward men, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. What happens when you're filled with the Spirit of living God? You're walking in, in purity before Him. You're seeking after Him. You become a peacemaker. You become one who not only has mercy towards others who have harmed you, but you are the one that goes out and reaches out to people to introduce them to the Prince of Peace. Amen? Which is Jesus Christ. And last, it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we walk with God, what's interesting to know is that in the end, we will face persecution. The more faithful we are to the kingdom of God, the more people will, will give us grief about it. But you know what? Praise the Lord. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 1, 7 and 8, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a of a sound mind. Therefore, not, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. This is Paul speaking. But share with, 
with me in his sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. If you're never catching any grief about sharing your faith, you're not sharing your faith enough. Amen? Oh man, somebody gave me heat for sharing my faith. Well, praise the Lord. That means God's using you. Amen? Satan's resources are limited. He's going to go after those who are being used most by the Lord. It says in 1 Corinthians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort which we ourselves have been comforted. So when the Lord ministers to us, and the Lord, we go through difficulties and we face persecution, because we have realized we are poor in spirit, because we have become spiritually bankrupt, because we have mourned over sin and now have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit who comforts us. And now through all of that, we've become meek, strength, under control of our Master. Then we've hungered and thirst for righteousness and drawn near to God. Then we've become merciful toward those around us who are hurting. We reach out to them in love. And then we become pure in heart, seeking after God. And then peacemakers to a world that is at war. What is, we go into a time of tribulation, but in the midst of it we can have joy because of all those other things I just mentioned. We can do it with joy because we know that God is faithful, because we're under control of our Master, because we serve Him. You know what? We can be blessed in dire circumstances no matter what if we know that God is with us. You look at people like Daniel. In the book of Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When, the, when they play the music, you're all going to bow down and worship this golden idol which I have built. And the music plays and everybody drops. You've got to remember that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in a foreign land. If they had dropped, nobody would have said a word. Nobody would have known, but God would have known. You know, and reputation is what we do when everybody's watching. Character is who we are when nobody's watching. Amen? And what happens is that these guys in the midst of that, they don't drop. They stay standing. They've been elevated to a place of high authority in the government. They call him in before Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar said, Did I hear that when the music played that you didn't bow? I'm telling you, you better bow next time. And if you don't, I'm going to throw you in this fire. And I love Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. After I've been hanging out with Jesus for a couple thousand years, I'm going to go look these guys up in heaven because these guys are pretty awesome. And they look at the king, Nebuchadnezzar, who's a vile and a wicked and a powerful man, a man who's put people to death at a drop of a hat, and they say, You know what, Nebuchadnezzar? We don't answer to you. And you know what? If you throw us in the fire, then throw us in. Because God will deliver us. And even if He doesn't, it doesn't matter. Because we serve and bow to God alone. Amen? And you know what? We need more men like that and women like that in the United States today who will not bow to the pressures of men. And I love what happens is they throw them in the fire and you know, Nebuchadnezzar says, Heat it up seven times hotter! How far, hot does fire have to be to burn you? I'm just wondering. But heat it up seven times hotter! He's going to make a point. We're going to scorch these guys! And it's so hot that when they open the doors to this fiery furnace that the guys who are pushing them in get scorched to death on the spot because the heat is so intense. But I love what happens is King Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fire and who does he see? Wait a minute. Didn't we put three in there and they were bound? And now there are four? They're walking around loose and one is in the likeness of the Son of God? Who is in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Jesus Christ. Amen? And when we go through persecution, if we're walking with God, then you know what? I love this part. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, Who's the God that will deliver you out of my hands? And just a moment later, he's going, Come out, come out, you servants of the Most High God. <laughs> Tribulation had been used mightily by God to, to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention. But what I love is they had to be called out of the fire. And you know why? Because it's better to be in the fire with Jesus than out of the fire without Him. Amen? And it's better to be in the midst of the worst trial of your life and have Jesus Christ with you than to be living in a castle on top of a hill with $50 million in the bank and not have Jesus Christ. Amen? And you know what? We're going to go through persecution if we stand for God. 
But oh, how happy are those who are persecuted because it means God is using you and doesn't that blow you away that God's using you. Amen? Isn't that good? God's using me. I can't believe it. God uses me. Stinking Dave. Right? He uses me and he wants to use each one of us. And what a privilege and what a blessing. How awesome it is that God would use people like us. Let's finish up. Turn back to Luke. Sorry about that. I don't like doing this and maybe 10 more years before I do it again. But I wanted you to see just the more comprehensive look at the Sermon on the Mount. Let's finish up with verse 24 through 26. Now we go from this place of blessing to a place of woes. And I want to just encourage you that as you, go, you and I go through persecution, that, every, that the, all the great and mighty people used mightily by God in the Bible were all persecuted. All of them. You say, I want to be used mildly by God? Then get ready. Amen? Because it's coming. And praise the Lord. Oh, how happy are you? God's using me. Satan's resources are limited. He's picking on me. Oh, God's doing stuff then. That's good. I like that. Amen? And that's where we need to be. But now we're going to go from this place of blessing to a place of woes. We move to a, from a place of spiritual desperation to fleshly satisfaction. Woe unto you if you're satisfied with what the world can give you. Look at verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Jesus said, It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. The Bible says you cannot serve God and mammon. God and money. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. The Bible says, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his, old soul, loses his own soul? Now, some of you might say, Well, I don't have to worry about that because I'm not rich. Well, let me just tell you right now, if you live in the United States... Compared to the rest of the world, you're rich. Amen? What he's, not, he's not talking about as soon as you get a certain number of dollars in your bank account, well, now you're going to hell because you've got too much money. That's it, right? That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about those who find their satisfaction in their riches. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. I know people who God has blessed with a great deal of wealth that use it for the kingdom of God. Amen? We need to realize that every dime I have, the shoe my feet, the clothes on my back, all belong to God. Amen? And if you're using His wealth for His glory, then God bless you. Amen? But if we get to the point where we're building monuments unto ourselves, we've got to be careful. And He's saying, those who have found satisfaction in their wealth, you've gotten your consolation already. You've already had your reward. You're going to miss out on heaven because you've been striving to find peace in what the world has to offer. And you've missed God. You know what? I would hope that I would never be so tied down to the cares of this world that I can't do what God wants me to do because of my pursuit of riches or the riches I've attained. You know, it happened to me for a while. I bought a big house in Southern California when I was real young. Right out of the street, I bought a house as much money as they'd loan me. That was the house I bought. And you know what? There was years in there where I was upside down in that house where I really felt God was calling me to go do more in ministry and I couldn't because I was in such bondage to my house. And you know what? May we not fall in that trap. To where, man, well, I'd love to go do ministry, but I can't because my house payment is so high. I can't miss two days of work. And I've got to work 900 hours a week. I've got to do all this stuff to feed the fleshly things that are perishing. He says, woe unto you who are rich. Remember the story of the rich man. Remember what happened? Jesus told him to come and follow me. And he went away sorrowful because he was very rich. He said, you know, follow the commandments. Oh, I've done. I've kept all the commandments. He said, well, one thing you haven't kept. Go and sell all that you have and come and follow me. And the man went away sorrowful because he had a lot of stuff. Oh, but I got a lot of stuff. Now, if the guy was, you know, sitting out front, a beggar, you know, and had a, had a 
piece of bread. You know, leave your piece of bread and come follow me. Oh, I can do that. That's no problem. Now, go sell the mansion. Get rid of all the servants. Get rid of all your camels and your stuff and come back and follow me. Oh, but I got a lot of stuff. Woe unto you who are rich because what happens is we make the mistake of thinking that, that wealth and attaining the things of this world are important. I've used the terminology before. It's like fighting over deck chairs in the Titanic. I mean, the ship is going down. Amen? Who cares? I'm going to sit in a nicer, nicer seat. Who the ship is going down, pal. There's a helicopter. There's a lifeboat. Get off the boat. Amen? And what happens is they fall into that trap. And he says, woe unto you who are fighting over stuff that is perishing. Verse 25. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Those who are satisfied. You know, those of us who hunger for God now will be filled with Him. Those who are filled now will hunger later. Will hunger, you know, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. It's in in Luke 16, where he's sitting there, and this man had had everything on earth, and now he's sitting in hell, and he's looking across the great divide, and Lazarus, a beggar who had been seated at his gate every day, and he cries out and says, could Lazarus just dip his finger in some water and come over and put on my tongue and just give me a little bit of relief? I'm, I'm in this place of eternal torment. You know what? Those who deny God now will hunger for Him later. And it will be too late. He even said, go and tell my family. He said, you know, it's too late. And you know what that tells me about hell? Hell not only will be a place of separation, but it will be a place where people will remember for all eternity the opportunities they've had to know Jesus Christ and yet rejected Him. You know what? If God gives you boldness, I've told people flat out, you will stand before God one day and He will bring up this very moment when you and I were talking. This is a divine appointment. You're going to spend eternity thinking about this moment, one way or the other. You're going to think about this moment, this opportunity, because God loves you so much. And you know what a heavy thing. But those who are full with the cares of this world shall hunger later. They're going to hunger. They're going to hunger in eternity. It says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. What's he talking about laughing about? Those who laugh about sin. We've seen this, haven't we? At the health club the other day, right after St. Patrick's Day, Monday night, I was working out with Joe. And this guy was over there going, yeah, man, I got so lit yesterday. I got up at 6 o'clock. I'm Irish. So I got up at 6 o'clock and had whiskey and Coke for breakfast. I just drank, oh, man, it was awesome, man. He's laughing. I'm like, blessed are those who laugh. They're laughing now, but they're going to weep in eternity. Amen? Now, I have a heart to pray for that guy that he'll be saved, but people laugh over their sin. Oh, yeah, I cheated on my wife. Oh, yeah, I did that. I got over on that guy. Stole him on that contract. Did that. And they laugh about sin. There's no conviction. Isn't that the exact opposite of blessed are those who are poor in spirit? Blessed are those who mourn? Instead of mourning over sin, they rejoice over it. They laugh about it. Turn, well, don't do it, but if you happen to turn your TV on, you see people laughing about sin on every channel, don't you? Everything, it's, it's sin and it's fun. Look, it's great. Everybody's laughing and rejoicing in their iniquity. But oh, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who are broken over sin, who mourn over sin. He says, those who laugh now, for they shall mourn and weep. When are they going to mourn and weep? In eternity, separated from God, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is a real place, you guys. If we don't know Jesus Christ, we're going to spend eternity separated from Him. The price has to be paid for our sin. Jesus says, I'll pay it. And those who say, no, I'll pay it, they do. And they spend eternity separated 
from God. Lastly, it says in verse 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so they did the fathers of the false prophets. Wait a minute. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Woe to you if you seek the praise and the approval of men rather than being faithful and obedient to God. You know what? As Christians, if we're sold out for God, always doing it in love, never doing it self-righteously, but our walk with God is going to be a halogen light on the sin of others, and people are not going to like it sometimes. Amen? But woe unto you if you just fit right in. Woe unto you if everybody loves you. If you're just fitting right in with the crowd, if, if they can tell dirty jokes around you, if, you're, if your people at work can live their lives around you and you don't have an impact on them by the way you live your life or the speech that you give... Woe unto you. Woe unto you if you fit in with the world. We're, not to be, we're to be in the world, but not of this world. Amen? We're to be different than these people. You know what? The Bible says that those people that don't know Christ are dead in their trespasses and sins, and we've been made alive in Christ. And if I took you down to the morgue and you fit in with the dead people, that's not good. Amen? If you're looking like them and smelling like them and frozen like them, I mean, that's not good. And as Christians, if we fit in with the dead world, something's wrong. We should be standing out. Not so that people will glorify us, but people will see our, the, our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Amen? That people will see Jesus in us and say, what's different about you? Oh, my best friends have created the universe. That's what's different about me. Amen? Woe unto you if all men speak well of you. For so they did the false prophets. You know, it's interesting to me that a lot of people today fall into that trap. Even, even in churches, we don't want to offend anybody. you got to, you know... We don't say anything because if, offend, if we offend somebody, they might not come back. And, you know, we, wanna, we want everyone to just love. I want everyone to love me. So I better not say anything that will cause them to, to be hurt in any way. You know what? You can love people right into hell. That kind of love. Amen? Just come every week. We won't talk about the fact that you're sinners in need of a Savior. We won't talk about repentance. We won't even talk about hell. Just come in and we'll entertain you. We'll just love you. It'll be wonderful. It'll be a big joy fest. And you know what? The reality is that if you love somebody and they're on a, they're on a crash collision with eternity separated from God, you're going to do everything you can to steer them away from it. Amen? That's love. That's love. Love is a busload of people going off a cliff and you're, jumping, you're, you're putting your car out in front going, no, you guys need to turn away. So what have we looked at this morning? God's calling on men. Not based on the, word, the world, worldly credentials, but a willingness to follow Him. Worship team, come on up. If any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's what the Bible says. A lot of churches don't want to tell you that. If any man desires to come after me, then you know what? I'm just going to pour out stuff on you. That's not, it says, if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The cross is a place of death. Amen? Take up the cross and follow me. It means, if any man desires to come after me, you must die. You must die to your will, to your passions, to your goals, to your desires, and then you can follow me. We also looked at the source of true righteousness and joy. A right attitude about ourselves, poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt. A right attitude about sin, mourning, and being grieved over it. A right attitude toward God, meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, pure in heart. A right attitude toward others, merciful and peacemakers. And then lastly, it says, Woe to those who seek satisfaction in, the, in their flesh, who laugh about sin, who seek to find satisfaction in worldly riches and popularity with men. Why don't we all stand and we'll pray and then we'll close the worship song. Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You, Lord, that 
You love us enough to just give us such clear direction in Your Word. And Lord, it begins in each one of our hearts when we are poor in spirit and broken. And Lord, I just cry out and confess to You that each one of us here this morning, we are desperate for You. Without You, Lord, we know that we can do absolutely nothing. We need You so much, Lord, in our lives, in every aspect of our lives. Father, we just pray that You would pour out Your Spirit upon each one of us, that we would truly mourn over our sin, and Lord, that we would be meek, strength under control of the Master, that You would rule and reign in each one of our lives, that we would hunger and thirst to know You better. Father, we just ask that Your will be done in each one here. And help us, Lord, to realize, too, that Your calling doesn't come to those who are the most educated, but Your calling comes to those who are willing to follow You. Lord, may we all have the heart to let go of everything in this world that encumbers us and follow You with our whole hearts. Lord, we love You. We praise You. You're such an awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. Amen. Let's worship.